Welcome to the podcast of Central Church. This is our latest weekly message. So tonight we're going to be starting our series on the book of Jonah. And to start off tonight, we're going to be looking at the book of Jonah as a parable. But just to premise this talk, I just want to add just a quick little caveat that if this is the first time that you've heard that the book of Jonah could potentially be a parable, I just want to acknowledge that that might be a difficult thing to initially hold. It was when I first heard that Jonah could be a parable, because when we first hear about a piece of scripture that we thought to be literal or historical or prophetic and then we hear it to be instead maybe a poem or a story or in this case a parable, it it challenges our view of scripture and that can be confronting. We don't always like that to happen. And so if you are in that camp tonight, then number one, I absolutely get it because I've been there myself. But secondly, I just want to encourage you at least listen to the points that I'm going to go through tonight as to why I think Jonah is a parable and why I think it's good that it's a parable, what we can actually take out of it if it is a parable. And just be open, think about it, try it on. And I like to compare it to, the, to like when we try on a new pair of shoes. When we go to the shoe shop, we don't just grab a pair of shoes off the shelf and take it home. You first take off your original shoes and you put them on, you see if it fits, you see if it's comfortable, you walk around in it a little bit. And if it does fit, if it is comfortable, you take it home, great. If not, you take it back off and you put on your original pair of shoes and that's absolutely fine. And so by the end of tonight, if this doesn't feel like it fits or it's not comfortable, then by all means, put it down and pick back up your original understanding of the book of Jonah and take that back home with you because That's absolutely fine. That's not a wrong thing to do. I'm not trying to convince everyone here. But because our faith isn't really based in the book of Jonah. So big picture, it doesn't really matter too much. Our faith is based in Jesus Christ. But at least let me just say one more thing. Every time I've come across a piece of scripture that I thought was literal, but then learned it was something else, sure, some of that you know, polish on the scripture, that kind of awe and wonder like, wow, this amazing thing actually happened. Sure, that's been taken away, but it's been replaced by something more beautiful, more powerful and more personal to me, myself. And so that's what I hope to share with you tonight as we go through this amazing book. Cool. Okay, so let's first just start getting into the book of Jonah and reading through it. Now, even though Jonah is just a short book, it's only four chapters long, it's still too long to read out its entirety here tonight. The sermon will just go on for too long. So instead, I've just kind of devised an abridged version of the book of Jonah with the main points here that I'm going to read through tonight, just so we're all on the same page. Cool. Okay, so it sounds a little something like this. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed to Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. The sailors prayed to their gods to calm the storm, and then when that didn't work, they cast lots. The lots fell on Jonah. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. 
At this, the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. Jonah prayed from inside the fish, and the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah up onto dry land. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. But to Jonah this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. Jonah went out and sat down in a place east of the city to see what would happen. The Lord made a leafy plant grow over Jonah and give him shade, but then he killed it the next day. Jonah said, I am so angry, I want to die. But the Lord said, you have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and it died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals. And so this is just a summary of the story of Jonah, this fascinating tale that we get in the Bible. And so there's several reasons why we might think this is actually a parable rather than a historical account or a prophetic book. And the first reason is that the way it reads, just the way this story reads, it reads more as a narrative than a historical document or a prophetic book. It sounds more like the book of Job than it does a historical document or if it was a prophetic book. If it was a prophetic book, we'd actually probably expect to sound a bit more like the book of Amos. Amos was a prophet that came around the same time as Jonah. And the whole thing with Amos, he was warning Israel against the pending invasion from Assyria. But in Jonah, we don't get anything about Israel uh, worshipping other gods. We don't get anything about the, the invasion of the Assyrian army. It's more like, you know, the crazy, wacky adventures of Jonah rather than a warning towards Israel. It has this kind of like once upon a time feel, like once upon a time, there was a prophet that disobeyed God. And if we look at the other prophetic books, they, they start in a similar way that Jonah does. It says, God called this prophet, and they responded. God called that prophet, and he responded. But in Jonah, we get God called Jonah, but Jonah ran away. It's like this what-if scenario. What if a prophet dared to deny God, and how would that play out? If it was a historical account, it also doesn't quite fit the bill there either, because historical uh, writings, they give us a lot more detail. And in Jonah, we, we're missing a whole lot of details. Um, in Jonah, there are no dates, there are no names of key figures other than Jonah himself. We don't even get the name of the king of Nineveh. There's not much information about the regions, much about the political information at the time. We're missing a lot of detail if this was a historical document. So it sounds more like a story being told for the purpose of a lesson rather than a historical account, this is what actually happened. Point number two, this story is comically exaggerated and it has the tropes 
of a, of a bit of a tall tale there to entertain but also to deliver a message as well. Everything in the story of Jonah is big, bright and colourful. Nineveh is the greatest city. It takes three whole days to walk through from one side to the other. When Jonah runs away from Nineveh, he runs to the furthest point in the known world at the time. So if you look at a map, you have Nineveh all the way over on the east, and then you have Tarshish, where Jonah was going, all the way over on the west side. When the boat is hit by a storm, it's the biggest of storms. Jonah is swallowed by a huge fish. When Jonah sinks into the ocean, he sinks down to the deepest depths, to the roots of the mountains, it says. The king of Nineveh, his reaction is, is way over the top, isn't it? Not only does he sit down in the dust and put on sackcloth and repent, but he commands every single one of the 120,000 occupants of Nineveh to also do the same. But not only them, also all the animals and livestock as well. Can you imagine trying to clothe all the, the sheep, the cows, the ducks, the chickens in, in sackcloth and make them sit in the dust? I mean... It's great if you're a sackcloth merchant at the time. It's good business. But it's, it's way over top. It's exaggerated. It's, it's comical almost. And then we get... And, and we also get that strange thing that the king of Nineveh, by the fact that he sits in the dust, dresses in sackcloth to mourn and repent, that's actually a Jewish custom. But Nineveh is not a Jewish city. And so why is the king of Nineveh doing Jewish things, practicing Jewish customs. This sounds more like this is a Jewish story told by a Jewish storyteller to a Jewish audience and they're just appropriating some of their culture onto the Ninevites so it just makes sense to the audience. This is what they're doing. This is how far they're taking their mourning. And also there's a bit of personification in the story as well, which is classic to storytelling. And so the storm rages, and rage is one of those human traits, and the boat it threatens to break up um, in light of the storm as well. And so there are all reasons why this sounds more like a story than an accurate historical document. Next point. There's irony in this story. There's a lot of irony in the story, which is really interesting. And so the first piece of irony we find is that Jonah, his father's name is Amittai, and Amittai means faithfulness. And Jonah's not the most faithful of prophets, is he? He runs away from the Lord. And there's also a really interesting comparison or juxtaposition, I want to throw that word in here because it makes me sound smart, a juxtaposition between Jonah, the holy man, the prophet of the Lord, and the pagan sailors. You see, when the storm first hits the boat, it says all the sailors are praying out and calling out to their gods to save them. But that doesn't work. But by the time they throw Jonah overboard into the ocean and then the storm calms down, they are afraid and they realise that Jonah's Lord, the one Lord, is the true God. And it says they convert and they repent and they build an altar and sacrifice to God. And so it's like we had the conversion of the pagan sailors and the deconversion of Jonah, the holy man. And so they swap places there. And actually, it's, it's a weird thing to build an altar, which is basically lighting a fire in the middle of a wooden boat, which you've got to wonder. I mean, first you've got to get all these heavy stones, which they probably wouldn't have it on the boat anyway. Then you've got to get dry wood. They've just been hit by a storm. And then you light a fire and put a lamb on it. Like, <laughs> it doesn't make sense, really. Um, 
Oh, and then we get Jonah's message. And there's irony in Jonah's message as well. This, this, I love this. You see, Jonah finds himself in this interesting, awkward, catch-22 position. You see, Jonah's a prophet. And a good prophet, they go to a king or a city and they say something's going to happen. This is a message from the Lord. And then it happens. But Jonah finds himself in the position, whatever he does, the opposite's going to happen. So if he goes to Nineveh and says, you're going to be destroyed, they're not going to be destroyed. But if he doesn't go to Nineveh, and says they're going to be destroyed, then they will be destroyed. And so Jonah finds himself in this really weird, awkward position. How can I be a good prophet if whatever I'm going to do, the opposite's going to happen? And so it's almost like this comical thing that we find in this book as well. Uh, next point, it's derivative. This book, or well, the section of this book is quite derivative. Now, I don't mean that in a condescending or negative way. I mean it in the sense that chapter 2 the, is, in its entirety, is a prayer from Jonah while in the belly of the fish. Okay, but this isn't new information. This isn't inspired, an inspired prayer that we get. Every single verse in this prayer is actually taken from various psalms in the Hebrew uh, Bibles or the Hebrew songbook as well. And so this prayer is like a collaboration of the greatest hits of the Hebrew top 40. And so if you think, you remember the, uh, the movie Moulin Rouge? And like all the songs in it were like all different pop songs over the last 20 or 30 years. And it was great. This is kind of like the ancient Hebrew Moulin Rouge in that sense. That the Jewish audience listening to this story would, oh, I know that. Oh, I know that. And it kind of takes them back. This, again, leads us to think this is a Jewish tale told to a Jewish audience rather than a historical account. The next point, and the final one I just want to make here, is that this book of Jonah focuses more on Jonah than God. You see, in prophetic books, we get a lot about God. That's a whole point of a prophetic book. We hear from the word of God, depending where the Israelite nation is at the time, whether God's dishing out his blessings to them, or it might be punishment or wrath, or... Um, or he's going back to take them back from captivity again. But here, we don't get much from God at all. We get a little bit at the start with his commission of Jonah, go to Nineveh and tell them this warning. And we get a bit of at God at the end when he's having this argument with Jonah. But other than that, we don't get a whole lot from God at all. You see... This book, again, is more focused on the adventures of Jonah. Jonah's the main character of this book, not God, like a prophetic book would. It, the most we get from God is in that last chapter, chapter 4. And in Jewish literature, things like word count is really important. But if you count the words between Jonah and God, they both say exactly 47 words each. And so it tells us there's no clear-cut winner in this argument that they're having, although God does actually get the last word, and so there's probably a bit of something here. And so, again, it's not a prophetic book saying this is God, um, you know, putting down his foot and saying this is exactly what I'm saying. It's kind of like leaves it up in the air, and that's what parables do. They kind of leave things up in the air and allow us to fill in the blank blanks. Now, if you know your scriptures and you know your gospels, you would also know that Jesus refers to Jonah. And so we need to be aware of it. We need to think, what, what, what does that mean? If Jesus believes that Jonah was real, does that mean we should believe that this book is a true account as well? And that, that's, a, that's a valid question to ask. That's one of the things that first popped into my head when I heard that Jonah could be a parable. 
Now, so to clarify, in Mark and Matthew's Gospel, Jesus says to the Pharisees who are demanding a sign from him, Jesus says back to them, no, the only sign I'm going to give you is the sign of Jonah. And so Jesus obviously knows who Jonah is. Jesus believes who Jonah is. So does that mean we should as well? Where do we stand with that? Well, firstly, let me just clarify that Jonah was actually a real person. We have historical evidence about Jonah. Jonah, the son of Amittai, we have lineage there. He's also mentioned in other places of scripture. So he's mentioned in 2 Kings chapter 14, Jonah, the son of Amittai. And he's also mentioned in the Apocrypha, the Catholic Bible, in the book of Ecclesiasticus, Jonah, the son of Amittai. So there's enough there for us to understand that Jonah actually was a real person that lived. But that doesn't necessarily mean that this account of Jonah, Jonah being swallowed by the fish and running from the Lord and going to Nineveh, all that was necessarily a, a true account. You see, throughout history, there's lots of examples of fictional tales being told about real life people. And the Jews are, pro- oh, sorry, the Greeks are actually probably most famous for it. And so you think of the great warriors like Hercules or Achilles, who are actual real warriors, but tall tales grew about their feats in battle and they grew legendary. And Hercules, who was probably just a great warrior, ended up being a man with you know, godlike strength, being the son of Zeus himself. And so real person, but a lot of fictional stuff built around it as well. Maybe a more modern example of this is Robin Hood. And so a lot of historians believe that Robin of Loxley was a real person, but then the tales of Robin Hood about Robin Hood leading a band of merry men through Sherwood Forest to fight uh, King, uh, sorry, Prince John's soldiers and then wooing the beautiful maid Marion, all that kind of stuff is, you know, is a fictional tale. It's, it's legendary stuff told about a real person. And the thing about Robin Hood, it's his transcended his historical understanding. He's even transcended these tales. You see, Robin Hood has now become a symbol to us, hasn't he? Even in the news today, if you were to hear a story on the news about someone who robbed a bank, but then gave the money to, let's say, some homeless people, we'd call him a modern-day Robin Hood, wouldn't we? We understand what being a Robin Hood-type character means. It's like the sign of Robin Hood, just like Jesus is pointing at the sign of Jonah. Jonah represented something. And so Jesus pointing to Jonah as a sign, just like he says, doesn't mean that Jesus is saying all this stuff actually happened to Jonah, but he's saying Jonah symbolizes something and that's the sign I'm pointing to. And specifically, he's talking about dying for three days and then coming back to life again. And also, we actually get examples in Scripture of Jesus actually using historical people in parables and stories as well. And so it's not past Jesus to do, do this. So one of the most uh, probably famous examples is Luke chapter 16, when Jesus tells the story of Lazarus and the rich man. Now, Lazarus isn't the historical figure I'm talking about. We don't actually know who this Lazarus is. This isn't the Lazarus Jesus brought back to life. This is a diff- different Lazarus. The audience knew who this Lazarus was. We don't know who this Lazarus is. All we know is he's a poor guy and he died. <laughs> But when he died, he went to the side of Father Abraham. That's what Jesus said. 
And then when the rich man dies, the rich man goes to Hades. And there's a conversation between Father Abraham and this rich man in this afterlife that is completely fictional. Jesus is just telling this parable, but he's using Father Abraham, this real-life historical figure, in this fictional tale. And so we understand this is part of the rhetoric. This is part of the way Jews told stories at the time. And so again, Jonah is a symbol that Jesus is pointing to. And so these are the reasons why I think that Jonah is a parable. And which leads me back to one of the points I made at the very start, so what? So why does this matter? Does it really matter in the end? Because it doesn't really change anything. If Jonah was real, if all this stuff really happened, or if it was just a parable, it doesn't really change our theology too much, does it? It doesn't really make us you know, take a 180 and go the opposite direction in whatever we believe about our doctrine, our dogma, our stance, or all that kind of stuff. And so does this really matter? Big picture, then no, it doesn't, because it doesn't change our faith. Our faith, again, is based in Jesus, not in Jonah. But if we are looking at the book of Jonah and trying to take out some kind of learning, some kind of lesson, then yeah, it is important. Because genre is important, it helps us understand why this text is here and what we can actually pull out of it. And so, if Jonah was a prophetic book, if you think about it, if Jonah was a prophetic book, a a telling from God, predicting the future, or saying this is going to happen to Israel, whatever it might be, an actual dialogue between a prophet and God, then really we've become a bit disillusioned with it because the God portrayed in the book of Jonah, it, it's not the kind of God that I have come to understand, the, a God that would say one thing and threaten an entire population of people and then come back and say, oh, no, 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 I've changed my mind now. And also, the way God speaks to Jonah as well, I mean, at the end, it's quite petty, this kind of back and forth, but the initial ask of Jonah to go to Nineveh and Jonah runs away. So Jonah doesn't do what God wants And so what's God do? He throws a storm at the poor guy and then he gets thrown into the water. He starts sinking down and then Jonah gets a big fish to swallow him. And then finally, after three days, Jonah gets vomited up onto the beach. You can imagine Jonah lying on the beach after being in the fish. He's covered in all sorts of bile and stuff. And God's going, are you going to do what I say now? And it's like, Jonah's like, yeah, I guess I do because who knows what's going to be coming next. I mean, I have disobeyed God in my life, but I haven't been swallowed by a fish yet. And I'm pretty sure everyone else can say the same thing in this room. If not, come and tell me later because I'd love to hear that story. It would be amazing. Anyway, and so yeah, if it's a prophetic book, we get a bit disillusioned with the kind of God that's portrayed. If it's a historic book, it gets even weirder because if it's historic, that means it's true. And then we get distracted with silly arguments about how plausible is it really to survive inside a fish for three days and three nights. Because if you know anything about fish... They breathe water, not air. That means a fish is full of water. It's not like in Pinocchio when Geppetto is inside the whale and there's lots of room, there's lots of air, they can light a fire. No, he's in a, he has, he'll have to hold his breath for three days and three nights inside a fish at the bottom of the ocean. It doesn't make sense. But if we get down, go down that path, we're distracted. We're missing the point completely. <laughs> the book of Jonah, it's not about an angry, swingy God it's not about the, you know, the integrity of inner fish life support systems. If Jonah is a parable, it prompts us to reflect on ourselves in, the, in the, any given situation and think, what would I do? 
it prompts action. That's the power of parables. That's why I think it's important that we do understand Jonah to be a parable because it takes us to a better place of learning, a better place of understanding. Parables have something in them for us. Historical documents are about stuff that happened to people that lived thousands of years ago, and that's great, it's interesting, but there's not a whole lot of personal stuff we can take away from it. Parables have an intrinsic, more deeper level of learning for each and every one of us. And when we look at how chapter 4 ends, the very last chapter of Jonah, it's very parable-esque. It stops with God asking a question. Shouldn't, don't I have a right to love and care for the people and the animals in the city of Nineveh? It stops on a question and then you turn the page and think, okay, what's the next thing? Oh, there's nothing else there. It just stops. And the whole reason it does that is to prompt us to think, okay, how would I respond? And so if you went to house church, one of the questions that was raised was, Jonah stops at chapter 4, verse 11. If there was Jonah chapter 4, verse 12, what would it say? I want you to think, what would you say back to God if you were Jonah? What does that prompt you to think? Where does that learning go? Because that's what parables do. They lead us somewhere. The prophet Nathan in 2 Samuel uses parables in a really powerful way. He goes to King David and presents him with a parable. And the parable is, just to summarise, is about a rich man and a poor man. And the rich man has hundreds of heads of livestock. He's got all this cattle, all these sheep. Wealthy man. But the poor man only has one single solitary little lamb, but he loves this lamb dearly. Now, the rich man has a visitor, and as is customary, you put on a feast when you have a visitor. But instead of the rich man taking one of his many, many, many heads of livestock and using that for the feast, he takes the one little poor innocent lamb that the poor man has and kills that and serves that up at the feast instead. And it says in Scripture that King David burned with anger at this rich man. And that's when Nathan pointed his finger at Nathan and said, you, O king, that's how prophets talk. They go, you, O king, you are this rich man. And that's when David fell to his knees and wept and mourned because he realized he was in the wrong. Now, we know that this story is actually about David, the king of, uh, the king of Israel, taking Bathsheba to be his wife. Now, David had many wives, could have had really any wife he wanted, but he took the one wife that belonged to Uriah as his own and then sent Uriah out to battle to be killed. But if Nathan walked up to David and said, you are wrong for taking Bathsheba as your wife, David would have just likely dismissed it because no doubt in David's mind had he convinced himself that he was doing the right thing. He would have had all sorts of reasons to believe that. He would have said, well, what about all the hardships I've endured in my life? You know, I was the least of my family in the lowliest of tribes. I was a shepherd, but then I had to go fight David. Oh, sorry, he is David. I had to go fight Goliath. <laughs> I had to go fight a giant. And then I had King Saul chasing after me, trying to kill me as well. After all these hardships, surely don't I deserve to take the beautiful Bathsheba as my wife? Maybe he could have used his... Uh, his throne to justify why he would be able to take Bathsheba, his wife. I'm the king. God has given me all of Israel. That includes Bathsheba. I have every right to take her as my wife. Or maybe it would have been even like a spiritual thing, a God-ordained thing. 
since David could see Bathsheba from his palace window, he would have said, she is obviously a gift to me from God because he has put her there in my view. So if I don't take her as my wife, then I'm actually denying God. Whatever it might be, David was convinced that he was doing the right thing. But the use of this parable by Nathan stepped around David's defences. It made a case for justice before it made an accusation. And so forced David to say, or to decide what is right and what is wrong in this situation before he even realised it was about him. That's the power of parables. They step around our defences and they penetrate our very hearts and make us question and change our ways. So imagine the teller of this parable, the parable of Jonah, in Jerusalem, He's likely a Jew talking to a Jewish audience. He sets up his little makeshift stage in the streets of Jerusalem, steps up on the stage and starts telling this parable about Jonah, this story about Jonah. And as he's talking, people are gathering around him. And then finally, as he gets to the last part of the story, where Jonah's sulking about his favourite tree that's just died, and God's comparing the life of that tree to the life of 120,000 peoples in Nineveh, then yeah, sure, the people surrounding the parable teller would be going, yeah, well, I can see that Jonah is being petty in this, in this instance. Because basically what God's saying is that I'm the creator. Don't I have a right to do what I want with my creation? It kind of echoes that whole analogy of the potter. The potter says, I am the creator. I can do whatever I want with the clay. I can make a beautiful vase or I can just throw that lump of clay away and, and the clay doesn't have any right to tell me what to do. I can create, I can destroy. But in this sense... God's saying, I'm the creator so I can save. And so, yes, all the Jewish people hearing this parable will say, yeah, in this place, yeah, Jonah is being petty. He's putting the life of a plant in front of 120,000 people. And that's when the parable teller would then go, you, O people of Jerusalem, you are Jonah in this instance. And you are holding whatever petty thing he's trying to make a point about over the lives of whoever, the Samaritans, the, the Gentiles, the Greeks, the Romans, whoever that might be. And he is trying to ram this point home, that we hold petty small things over the lives of people or other people groups. And so the parable puts things into perspectives, and it does this for us as well. So what do we hold, what petty things do we hold above other people, other, other people groups? Is it, is it our pride? Is it our status? It is, is it how much money we have or the clothes that we dress in? Is it our image? What might we be holding higher than other people or other people groups? That's where it starts to talk to us. And so if this is the point of this parable, then, then why all this lead up? If the point of the parable is just this little bit at the end about uh, Jonah getting upset about this tree and God saying, is that more important than all these people? Why do we need the whole thing about Jonah running away from the Lord and being swallowed by the fish? What's the point of all that? Well, firstly, there's you know, showmanship. That, that's important in storytelling. Um, there's no TV, there's no radios back in the days. And so the parable teller, once he's on his little makeshift stage and starts telling the story, the, the story needs to go on for a bit to draw people to him. And so he's using these familiar people and these familiar verses and songs and things like that to bring people in. And then once he has a large crowd around, that's when he rams that final message home and confronts the people. 
But that's not the only point. That doesn't mean the rest of the story is just, is just bloat, it's just filler. You see, the book of Jonah, it's filled with all sorts of messages and purpose and learnings that through our modern Australian 21st century eyes that we miss. And so the next time I preach, so next week, Bruce Skinner's going to be coming in looking at the book of Jonah from a missional perspective. I'm going to speak the following week and have a closer look at some of these other messages within the book of Jonah. I find them, some of them really fascinating as well. I'm going to be having a closer look at the whole sign of Jonah. When Jesus pointed to Jonah and said, I'll give you the sign of Jonah, we get the death and resurrection, but you know, why, what's wrong with Jesus giving a sign? There's a lot of deeper stuff there that we can often miss as well. It's, it's more interesting than you know, the kind of diluted Sunday school version that we often get, or at least that I got you know, growing up as well. And so just to wrap up, the point of a parable, or really scripture for that matter, is to point us back to God. Jonah mirrors Christ, and Christ points back at the sign of Jonah. And there's this deep revelation that we can find, understanding these stories in their context. And so that's why I think this is a parable. That's why I think it's good that's a parable. And so, like I said at the beginning, just ask yourself, how did that feel? Did it, did it fit? Was it comfortable or not? Again, if it doesn't feel like it fits, by all means, take it off and pick up your original standing at Jonah, and that's absolutely fine. But if you feel it fits, or you want to walk around it in a bit more, uh, I'd like to just give a, um, a bit of a reference to other places you can look. There's actually uh, some great podcasts uh, by Jared Bias that talks about this. There's three podcasts. He's one of the presenters on the uh, Bible for Normal People. And he goes through the book of Jonah as a parable in a lot deeper than I can just tonight um, as to why it's a parable and the deeper learnings that we can take on that as well. So if that's something that you're interested in, you want to find more, that's a great place to start there. Thanks for listening. If you want to check out more about Central, visit us at centralchurch.org.au. Music by Chris D'Souza, a beloved member of Central.